so um, I'm the talkative one. I say lots of words, but they don't mean much. Verna says less words, and they are of much more importance. Um, you'll see. Um, but we're a good pair, actually. Um, yeah, Rin and I are kind of like opposites attract. I'm tall, she's short. Um, she's educated, you heard in our bio. I am self-taught. Uh, but I think in the most important ways, we really are aligned. And uh, yeah, we've tried to build a house, build a home around that, those core, most important things. So I know I speak on behalf of Rinda that we're really grateful and honored to be with all of you today. You know, if we were having a conversation with any one of you, we would be very happy to be talking about any of these things. To, to be able to encourage other devotees, there couldn't be a better thing to do, you know, in, in all creation, really. Because if someone loves someone, like Krishna loves all of us, if someone else is able to bring joy or happiness or encouragement to that person, Krishna will be infinitely pleased. So if even one of you walk away from our gathering today a little bit more encouraged in your Christian consciousness, this was a smashing success. You know, because in the, in the infinite, you know, in the infinite cycle of time, um, all that really matters is our relationship to Krishna. You know, everything else is like a detail, right? So our, that's our goal today. Our goal today is to try and offer you all something, each of you. Um, you want to add anything just to start? Brenda's very shy. She's like, I cannot believe you agreed to do this. <laughs> but you know, um, last time I think I came to London was the 40th anniversary of Rabbit London. You sure it was at the 40th? Yeah, the Troxy and, and Mother Yamuna was here. We got to chant with her, which was like, it was an out-of-body experience for me. Like, you know, growing up hearing her singing, and, and then I'm like, like playing harmonium, and she was like, yeah. Um, so I think that was the last time I was, it was like 2009, is that right? So it's been a long time. I don't come to London very often, but I'm hoping to change that with your mercy. I have a lot of friends here, but I, uh, yeah. So I get to be here for this time with my family. Um, Vrinda's been here before, but our kids have never been to London. So, you know, in that uh, um, intro, and your name is Shamali. forgive me. Shamali's intro, she said our kids are, what is it, what was it that we wrote? They're growing into independent, devoted, what did I say? Wonderful, talented, independent devotees on their own terms. So they opted not to be here today. Um, 
which I think is important, actually, to say. I want to I highlight that. They are going with Pandavasena to France. And part of me, like the people-pleasery side of me, was like, well, you are going with Pandavasena to France, and this is the Pandavasena event. You should come as a way of showing, you know, reciprocating for, you know. But um, they're just a few days in London. They want to go to the Globe Theater and watch some Shakespeare in Shakespeare's whatever original theater. And so there was, we talked back and forth, and Rinda kind of pushed them, go do what you guys want to do. You don't have to come to this. And I'm really actually um, proud of them, that they chose to do something that was important to them. They're very happy to be going on the, it was their initiative to go. I don't know, how, how many of you are going to France? Anyone here going to France? All right, great. So you guys will get a chance to hang out with them. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and you'll see, I think you'll see that they're great kids and they're nice devotees, but they chose not to be here because they have a, a clear sense of who they are and what they want to be doing and it was the right thing to do and not be here today, right? They will be better people and better devotees for not coming to the program today. And they had enough uh, self-awareness to know that. But it, you know, that did take Rinda encouraging them to be able to make that decision. So that kind of ties in with it. I think, I don't know, was it Risha? Someone asked me for a theme. And so we kind of like made up a thing, which is the theme was getting to know yourself before getting to know someone else. And um, so I think this point about our kids is an important thing. Learning who you are um, is very important in your life. And if you don't know who you are, and if you're, I mean, to be frank, I'm 46, I'm still learning how to say no to people. I'm still learning how to say yes to the things that are really valuable to me, which means I don't really know myself. I'm still discovering who I am. And in Krishna consciousness, nothing could be more important. Um, how can we know Krishna if we don't know ourselves? But again, how can we know ourselves if we don't know Krishna, right? It's like, but um, I think that's very important. So, yeah. Um, you want to add anything? Say something. Um, yeah, I would just add a little to the theme that we picked was getting to know yourself before you went to know anyone else. Yeah, or like in a relationship. relationship. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I guess just to add on that, you're always evolving. People are always constantly changing, and what you like five years ago is not going to be the same thing that you're into five years from now. So I think. Um, yeah, when looking for a life partner, something you want to share all those experiences with, just finding someone that you can grow together with and that you trust to be there with you. So, okay, lesson one in Grihasta Life here. I said, Rinda, I think I got a good theme. Getting to know yourself before getting to know someone else. Who could disagree with that? Vrinda's like, oh, I don't agree with that at all. I think that's ridiculous. That's a terrible theme. So tell us why you thought that was... I, just, I kind of dissolved yeah. that point. Say a little more. Say a little more. Uh, 
well, I think, I guess I would just say, I mean, sometimes, you know, like, uh, from like a Western point of view, there's like, people are, you know, you're always like, you're expected to go date and be with other people and, you know, before you decide who you're going to settle down with. But I think it's great, like, if you find the right person, even if you are young and not fully sure yet what it is that who you are, or I mean, you might have an idea of what it is that you want to, that you are into. But I think, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that, um, you know, those should limit you from being with, with that person or that you have this expectation where like, okay, well, you know, I need to go experience life, do some other things first and before I can commit to being with, with someone. Does that make sense? It does, but um, to play devil's advocate, um, I think part, part of the reason why you're saying that is now we have a 19-year-old daughter and a 17-year-old daughter. So you're kind of thinking on their behalf, like for, for them, like, will they know themselves before they find who they want to be with? But at the same time, so I think that's important that you're, am I right that you're thinking a little bit on their behalf? But what about thinking on, on just purely from your side? Isn't it true that we got together quite young and that you kind of like on some level think like it would have been good if we had like a little more life experience before we got together? Yeah, but um, like you said, we're, yeah, but you're constantly evolving, right? Like as, as a person and you're not and static. Yeah. 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 I think I think um, I think what Vrinda's speaking to is really exciting for me as a member of this community. Um, I don't know. You know, I've never been part of a Christian church. I've never been part of a mosque or or a synagogue. Right. I grew up as a devotee kid. But I have never personally seen the kind of diversity in a community that we have. And it's actually kind of a big challenge. And it may be one of the biggest challenges that we have to face in the next 20 years. Um, I don't know about much about London. So forgive me. I, I can't speak to what it's like here. And maybe that's something good that we're bringing in this conversation that we're kind of like really outside. It's like we've never hung out here. We don't know the culture of inside or outside the devotee community. We're like, you know, just really flying blind. But in America, it's really fascinating. You have first generation Indian immigrants in America who like found Jesus, you know, like, like, they found religion, like when they met the devotees, like they had come to America thinking like, forget this stuff. That's for my grandparents. Like I'm here to make money, be successful. And then they find Krishna and all of a sudden they become an orth like Orthodox Brahmin. <laughs> like after years of eating meat and doing everything they're doing, suddenly they become like an Orthodox Brahmin. It's like, what, like, like what just happened? Like, you know, 
now they want our, their kids to like only go to Gurukula and only watch, you know, Krishna things. And, you know, my son's going to be Prahlad Maharaj. No one knows. But actually, like, I'm not going to be, I don't want to be puffed up. But, you know, no one knows my son is actually the next Prahlad Maharaj. And then when they're like, son who's only like who's chanted 16 rounds every day in like 9 10 11 then he becomes like 12 and he starts like thinking about ladies they just like disappear from the community and like they don't know what to do they're like awkward like i thought my son was a saint but now he's just normal and <laughs> like i don't know like their own identity like collapses and they feel like like they can't show you know it's like hold on hang on a second right Meanwhile, I know devotee kids who um, are just trying to find their way in the world from the Indian community. Because I, like, remember, being a devotee kid, I've grown up around Indian-bodied people my entire life, right? So I've seen a bunch of kids, second-generation Indian kids in America, who are trying to figure out how to bring these two worlds together that seem to be, like, magnetically opposite right like and you can't push two magnets together it's like not possible it's like like so it's like how what how is this supposed to work you know so your parents they don't want to hear about anything because they're orthodox now so like you can't talk about any of the things you're dealing with in school you can't talk about girls or boys or you can't talk about pressures for example young professionals having to deal with drinking like in the business world. And it's just like, don't, whatever you do, don't talk to your parents at all about it. So who are you supposed to talk to about it? Like, I guess the other kids maybe. So it's like these generations that are not in communication with each other. And then you've got like the fact that ISKCON was built by like, in many places, a bunch of white people. And like, the movement was about to f like implode because of lack of resources and manpower and organization. And then the Indian community like showed up and like saved everyone's like at the last second when ISKCON was like collapsing. So now all of a sudden these temples are like filled with Indian devotees and all these Western devotees are like, we've been marginalized. Like what happened? You know, we built this movement. So it's like, there's all these funny little things, you know? And then in America you have, um, like a lot of racism and stuff that's inherent, especially with black body devotees in America. I don't know if it's exactly the same in England, but you know, like in America, racism is like a, a really a serious thing in dealing with, um, especially the black community. So black devotees feel like no matter how like loved and cared for they may, devotees may think they are in the rest of the world. They're actually like, and the rest of, you know, America, they're basically um, always going to be a second class citizen. And there's nothing that anyone can do about it. So, like, I know devotee kids who basically grew up in the movement, doing kirtan, being devotees, even going to Gurukula. But when they had to become, now I'm talking about black body devotees, when they had to become um, an adult in the rest of the world, they just had to choose. You're either black or you're not. And so they're like, I guess that means I'm not a devotee because I want to fit in with the community that looks like me. And they're mostly Christian and they think that Hindus are like pagans or something. So like predominantly the black community in America is evangelical Christian. 
So you just got to like shut up about anything other than being a Christian or Baptist or whatever in America. So like for those devotees, they're trying to figure out how to integrate into a culture that's just like, you're either with us or you're against us. So I've, I've met a bunch of devotees who are, they just forget being a devotee, except when they like show up at a festival or something. The rest of the time, they're just a black American. You know, so it's just so interesting to me how we have these communities. And then it's like somehow or other, we're all supposed to like marry each other. <laughs> so Vrinda's mom's from South Africa, Indian, South Indian from South Africa, but like three generations, something like that. So they were in South Africa for some time. It's not like they were first generation in South Africa. Vrinda's dad is multi-American Scotch, Irish, German, kind of like. So what's her culture? What's your cult? Like who are you supposed to date according to like South Indian traditions or like, you know, I remember when we, st we first met, it was like Vrinda's parents were like, she's an initiated Brahmin at 12. So when are you getting married? And my parents were like, hang on one second, like, uh, shouldn't they date? Like, don't they need to, like, get to know each other a little bit? So it was like we had to find, like, so what was our version? <laughs> we basically got engaged for a long time. <laughs> but it was like, I mean, it was like a way to kind of do both things. And during the time we were engaged, Vrinda went to India, studied Bharanatyam, I was doing other things. Like we were not always together, but like we were engaged, but we were basically dating still. There was the idea that, you know, we were serious, but also the idea that it may not work out or something. <laughs> we met when Vrinda was 16 and I was 20. And I um, remember when we met, we met in the shoe room at the temple in Washington, D.C. So romantic. From the very moment we met, we've been serving the lotus feet of the devotees. But I remember, um, like, I mean, isn't Rinda so beautiful? She's such a beautiful lady. Yeah, I still... I still, when Vrinda walks in, like like last night we were at Omnam and Vrinda walked in and I saw her across the room and I thought, oh, she's so beautiful. I still, I still feel that way. Um, but I remember, because she was so young, I remember thinking, that, you know, I had actually been, I don't know if you guys know this, but I had been um, a working actor in Hollywood as a young person. So I was in a few movies and a TV show when I was in my teens. So I had... A, you know, much broader set of experiences in the non-devotee world than Vrinda had at 16. You know, living in a, you know, pretty um, sheltered family. Her parents are, you know, they have a tight family. Um, but I remember thinking, if I'm serious about this person, I have to be serious. Like, I actually have to be um, only in this relationship if I'm planning to marry Brenda. That was my awareness. So. You want to say anything? No? 
I, so, so just to finish this point, I guess, I feel like it's, I feel like, um, Prabhupada gave us something that is, as I've traveled around the world as a kirtaniya, as a musician, I've met a lot of communities. I've done kirtan inside a lot of different communities, yoga communities, spiritual communities, um, you know, uh, groups, affiliations in different ways. And I've met people and made friends and seen their gurus, their teachers, their philosophy. You know, the world is a diverse place and people are lovely and it's, you know, it's just, there's a lot of lovely people in the world in all the religions of the world, you know, every, there's love, tons of lovely people, but there's nobody like Srila Prabhupada. And what Prabhupada gave us, you can't actually calculate it. You know, um, this Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, that's uh, Gopinath Acharya and Shankarishi Prabhu, they're doing these small cohort Gaudiya Studies courses. Have you heard about this? I highly recommend, if you can, to take one of these eight-week courses. You will be blown away by how pivotal Gaudiya Vaishnavism has been to the history of India. You don't realize it, actually. We have this idea that, oh, there's like so many things and we're just another thing and there's this and there's that and there's that and then there's, and there's us, but not historically. I was fascinated to find out historically the role of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Lord Chaitanya, Lord Chaitanya's devotees and disciples have played a major role in shaping the history of India and actually even Vivekananda and Ramakrishna, all these guys, they come from Lord Chaitanya. You don't realize it, but the post what they call Neo Vedantics, these guys who are the most popular guys, philosophical, you know, they, they come from a reaction to the British by the Bengali Badralok. And the Badralok was the Bengali kind of upper class that was undoubtedly connected to the ruling classes of India from the Mughals and the English. And without a doubt, 99% of them were Vaishnava at one point around the time of just after Lord Chaitanya and his devotees. Everyone who is, who is from that area and that group has been touched by Lord Chaitanya in a very serious way, which means we've had a major impact. We don't realize it. It's actually a direct connection to Lord Chaitanya. And of course, Srila Prabhupada has given us the essence of the teachings of Lord Chaitanya in a living way. It's a very fascinating thing. I highly recommend it. But all that to say, that we have an enormous responsibility in the next 20 years. Many of Prabhupada's disciples will not be here at that time. Um, like, like, let's think about what that means for a second. My kids are now like Ravati's 19. I'm going to Kirtan festivals where they're like, Hare Krishna, the senior devotee has arrived, Gauravani Prabhu. And I'm like, oh crap. Like, like, I'm the senior devotee, oh boy. So it's going to be like that each successive generation. Like, 
So what that means is at the festival that I'm the senior devotee, I am the number one representative of Lord Chaitanya's movement. And it's going to be that each, each one of you is going to have one of those experiences at some point in your life. You're going to show up somewhere and you're going to be the number one representative of Lord Chaitanya's movement in that gathering, small or big. It's pretty wild. You know, all of us feel unqualified and like, how am I even here? Like in a fancy seat, velvet seat. But somehow or other, there will come a time where you will be in that gathering or that group the number one representative of Mahaprabhu's movement. It's pretty fascinating. So for all of us at this time, we are defining what it means to be in Mahaprabhu's movement. And a big part of that is Grihastha community. I mean, my Guru Maharaj is holding his Radhana Swami. He told me there's only one ashram that supports all the other ashrams. Energetically, financially, um, practically, Grihastha Ashram supports all the other ashrams, including the Grihastha Ashram. Can I get um, off topic more? Can I get a little controversial for a second? I am American. Uh, over the last year or two, actually the whole time of COVID, there's been these cycles of criticism about senior devotees in relationship to the responsibility of senior devotees and sannyasis caring for the youth and child protection. Uh, certain sannyasis over the last few years, you notice it's like there's like names have been coming up. People have been going on the Internet and blasting like, you know, boom, it's been going on. Right. Here is my submission on the subject. And this is the venue to say something like this. There are a myriad of things that are important in, in our lives. Someone who loves deity worship could say, Prabhu's. If we don't make deity worship the number one most important thing, how is Krishna present in our lives? Right? Someone could say, it's all about prashadam distribution. The whole movement was built on prashadam distribution, right? You can do this, anything. Name me something that's the thing, the only thing. Give me, give me a, an example of something else. Book distribution. Oh, well, book distribution. How could I forget book distribution? I mean, it's the books are the basis. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that really matters, book distribution, honestly. Give me another one. Oh, I mean. <laughs> So you get the point, right? Everything is the only thing. If you have ever had a relationship with someone who was abused as a young person, child protection is the only thing. I mean, you'll feel it in your heart. You're like, without a doubt, like I just had a friend who had basically shared his experience, you know, as a young person. Oh my God, like, yes, everything stop. If you can't take care of the kids, forget the whole thing, throw the whole thing in the rubbish bin. I mean, really, it does feel that way when you're talking to someone who was abused by a devotee, someone pretending to be a devotee. It's like, stop the presses, stop everything, close the deity doors. If you can't take care of a kid, forget it. The whole thing is rubbish, right? Okay. Everything is like that, though. Now, here's the thing. If you're someone who you came to the movement and you were suffering in the material world, and you met a devotee like Vishnu John Swami, 
and he was a festival. And you realize that Krishna consciousness means every moment is a festival. And you make it your life, like Tribu of Anathapur, you make it your life's mission. Every moment for everyone I meet until the day I die, when they meet me, it's going to be a festival for everyone. That's your life's mission. How are you going to go to someone like that and say, stop everything that you're doing. What you need to start doing is deity worship. It's just like their wires don't, it's like, even it's like, you know, the story of Mahaprabhu goes to, goes to Murari Gupta and tells him to worship Radha and Krishna. Murari Gupta's like, I can't do it. I'm trying. I just want to worship Sita Ram. You know, Mahaprabhu says, no, no, no. I'm just, I was just teasing you for you worship Sita Ram, you know? So this is the point I'm getting to as a Grihasta community, taking care of husbands, taking care of wives, taking care of seniors, taking care of children. How can we say it's the responsibility of a sannyasi? Who's, who's going to say that a sannyasi who spent his life preaching, traveling, doing kirtans, doing festivals, whatever their thing is. Now, now Maharaj, it's your responsibility to take care of my wife. And if you don't make taking care of ladies in ISKCON the number one thing, then I'm going to troll you on the internet. Doesn't make any sense. They are on the front line. If it's a war against Maya, these senior devotees, not just sannyasis, ladies, senior ladies, senior men, people who are, have given their lives, they're on the front line fighting Maya. And we're back here commenting. What we need to do as a Grihasa community internationally is meet them at the front line. I need to make taking care of, I have two daughters and a wife. I need to make taking care of ladies in ISKCON my number one priority. It's not my Guru Maharaj's responsibility. He has his responsibilities. This is my responsibility. And if I see that somewhere that there's a lady who's being disrespected in ISKCON and something, I have to fix it. Not the GBC, because they're dealing with their stuff. I am a Grihasta. This is my responsibility. We as a Grihasta community need to step forward and solve these problems. It's our responsibility. That's my submission on this very complicated subject. And I think it will never be solved unless we do that. If we expect a group of primarily sannyasis to spend weeks discussing a complicated thing regarding someone's like sexuality, it's never going to happen. Grihastas aren't even comfortable talking about it. How we expect sannyasis to sit around and, and like Mayapur Dham and talk about it? Not going to happen. We have to do it. We have to step forward as a community and take that responsibility. And then things can really start happening. We are the ashram that is supposed to support all the other ashrams. Not that all the other ashrams are supposed to be supporting the Grihasta ashram. Have any comments? Um, yeah, I've talked a lot. I see a hand coming up. I hope I didn't talk too much. I hope I didn't make any offenses. But uh, some thoughts. Um, so we can open up to Q and A if if you guys want. Yeah, we have a hand up. If you have an official yeah, thing, otherwise we can. Um, so if you if you ask a question, and I'll try and hear it, and if it's, I'll repeat it just so that everyone can hear it.
just to give you background because I think it's important in this context. Uh, obviously, I grew up in the Western community. Lots of yoga and spiritualists, lots of mind bodies. And um, I found Christian consciousness. Uh, married uh, a husband who's from the Indian community, but Western Indian. And so we really relate to what we're talking about. We've got the age for a really long time. Excellent. I love it. Some people have three. They get the like the legal one in there somewhere in between. Yeah. Um, but there is actually evidence, empirical evidence, for everyone who may find. Um, I'm not sure if I Just uh, summarize the question and then just for the recording as well. Um, so from what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, the question is, um, the, it, you know, it can be very difficult transitioning between ashrams and it can feel like there's a lack of support for that. Um, what practical tips do you have um, in how the Grahasha community can support those transition periods? Is that right? So practical ideas and suggestions. Rinda's got the brains behind the team here, so I'm, I'm trying to draw it out of her. Um, jump in if you want to say something. Rinda's very practical. I'm very visionary. Well, I feel like um, when Lord Chaitanya, so Lord Chaitanya appeared with two primary missions. Does anyone know what they were? 
Number one, first mission of Lord Chaitanya. Spreading Hare Krishna, Mahamantra. So giving the chanting of the holy name, especially the Hare Krishna Mahamantra to the world, that was Mahaprabhu's first. Second, does anyone know? And specifically Radharani. So to, to show the world, give them an example of the love of Srimati Rani so we could actually have something to hold on to, to give us some sense of the love of Srimati Radharani and the gopis. Yeah, it's like, those are the two main missions of Mahaprabhu. So the first half was done before he went to Puri. He spent the second half of his life in Puri, 20 and 20, basically, 20 years and 20 years. 20 years before Jagannath Puri, 20 years basically in seclusion in Jagannath Puri. Did you guys know that? It's pretty wild. You know, for someone who's known as the Kirtan avatar, that he spent the first half of his life in Kirtan public, second half, you know, actually even less than that in Kirtan because he only started Kirtan after his father passed away. And then he spent 20 years in seclusion, basically, primarily in Puri. And he told Nityananda Prabhu, sorry, you preach. You stay in Bengal and take care of the Grasa community. Build the community. Gather together in small groups. Make little namhatas and do little kirtan together. That's the whole program. That's it. Sometimes I think because Srila Prabhupada was so revolutionary, we get it in our head that we are like an acharya. I mean, like, the chances that the next great Acharya of our lineage is in this room are pretty slim. It's possible. It's possible one of us could be, like, the next amazing Acharya of the Sampradaya, but not probable. Most likely, we're all just normal devotees. And our job is just to be nice. <laughs> and, like successful and have a job and like, you know, take care of our kids and like, you know, take them to football and like, you know, right. That's maybe like the higher chances. We're just supposed to live like our life chanting Japa and just like Hare Krishna and like, you know, do it like that's it. The idea that we have to do this like grand thing in our lives is actually mostly fueled by false ego, including in my case, quite honestly, you know, most devotees just need to be nice people. And I mean, what do you think? Well, yeah. Um, but I guess to try to address the question more directly, I think for making an impact and helping with those transitions, you can really, I think, like Gore is saying, only, you know, those small communities. I think, um, you know, if, if that's something, yeah, me that you're passionate about and want to see a change there. And I think just doing that at, you know, at your community level. Like if you say you have three or four families that you get together most with, if you're someone who's passionate about child protection, you be that parent amongst the three families who goes, hey, I just heard on the news that there's this thing that we should watch out for, like there's this new app that none of our kids should get or whatever, like you're the child protection officer of the three family unit that you're part of. I mean, like that's practical, right? We have a group of friends in DC with kids around the same age. Vrinda's, you know, got a core group of friends. I have some, and we kind of like are like a little unit, like, 
we don't get as much nourishment going to the Sunday feast with all the devotees as we do with our just little group of friends. Does that resonate with anyone? Right? We do things because it's there's some responsibility, but what it's really is, the, the essence of it is our core friendships. And I think Vrinda's comment is really spot on. I'm not saying go to, you know, picket the GBC in Mayapur. What I'm saying is in your three family, four family group of friends, take full responsibility of the Grihasta ashram. If someone is going out of town, like feed their cats. I know devotees aren't supposed to have cats in their dogs or whatever, you know, help take care of each other's kids and, you know, be, be that thing. Maybe you guys do this more, but something I really think needs to happen in America more is hire devotee business people to work for you. Don't hire non-devotees. Lose money hiring devotees. Better, I'm telling you. In the long run, it's better. Better lose money and pay a little more for a devotee. Eventually, you'll find someone who does the job well, and you can pay them well, and they'll do it just in the community. Keep it all in the community. Take care of each other. You know, work with each other. That's the key. That's really the key. Is that okay? Any other thoughts or questions? Um, so uh, we've got quite a few questions on the Mentimeter. And just as a reminder, if you do have questions that you want to ask anonymously, just feel free to pop on there and enter the code and you can ask those questions. And I can't see who's asking the questions. Um, so I'll try and like group our questions kind of on, along themes and then we'll spend some time on that theme. And so if you, have, if you have any more questions, like put your hand up or put them into the Mentimeter and I'll try and capture them all in that time. Just so we're like on one topic and then moving on. So the first one is, uh, I mean, I think it's really relevant to this topic. It's sort of a theme around like entering the ashram. So going in, you know, picking the right person and then sort of in those beginning stages of courting or whatever you want to call it, um, <laughs> associating. Um, so I think the first question, let me... Um, So I think we'll sort of start with just like based on your guys' experience. Um, so you mentioned that um, at times when you were sort of in this engaged dating period that you were sometimes in other countries and sort of at a distance from each other. So this person's question is, how do you sort of work with that physical distance um, and just respecting that the other person might be really busy and not really able to talk that much? Um, while obviously still maintaining the relationship and nourishing the relationship. Yeah. Um, I think you just have to have that, that your like confidence in yourself that of course, you know, you, I mean, these, I mean, when Gore and I were long distance, this was before cell phones and, you know, we would write an email every couple days <laughs> to each other. I would open up and be like, that's all she wrote? Like, what? <laughs> like, I'm waiting for a couple days for an email, and she's like, it's hot here. Talk to you soon. Oh, my God. You know. No, like, poetry. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, but so I, I would say these days, I mean, you know, you can, people are constantly in touch with each other, got texting and FaceTime. And Video chat. All types of things. So um, definitely, I think it's, you know, if it's something, I think just knowing what the, the person that you're with, your partner, appreciates, you know, if that's something they really appreciate, just having that connection of like, even if it's just like a good morning text or like something that only is only going to take you 30 seconds and, but it's going to make so much like such an impact for that person that I think you could give that time. But, and then it's like a fine balance of, you know, you don't want to come, um, yeah, if you feel like the, I guess you're, if the other person just feel like they're too needy or they're not confident enough. Like, I just, yeah, I think people we know, sometimes people are, can't handle those longest relationships. They, they're jealous, they're worrisome, um, and yeah, they are just unable to, to be in situations like that. So I think, I mean, that can be a test too, to know, you know, if, once you are married or you are going to be traveling, I mean, Gore and I, we, we travel, even though we're married, we travel a lot separately from each other. So I think um, knowing that before you make that commitment, that level of commitment to each other, it would be a good opportunity to. I think this, yeah, it's basically, it does tie back to the subject of getting to know yourself I think it's can't be overstated how important it is. If you find yourself in a long distance, maybe like while you're dating or, or engaged or courting, you find yourself in a long distance relationship and you find yourself being too needy for that other person for attention or whatever, you should maybe in, introspect on that. And if you're not feeling satisfied in yourself and you need too much from someone else, that might be something that you should work on a little bit because no one else can complete you except Krishna. And if you're really depending on someone else to make you feel whole, you have to do a little work. It's, it's just, I'm sorry to say it, I think it's a fact. You know, couples who have been together a long time have learned this. I don't know any older couples in this room there is a point where you have to like take a deep breath and go, okay, she's who she is, I'm who I am, and we're good together, and we're also good on our own. Like, you know, the analogy I've heard given is this thing of two trees. If the two trees are too close to each other, one is gonna suffer from not getting enough sun or water. One tree will always take too much if they're too close to each other. But if there's a little space, then actually they can both be very healthy and they'll create a beautiful ecosystem around them where all other creatures can come and take, take shade and space and they create like a culture around them. But there needs to be a little bit of space, you know, I feel. Nice. Um, so the next question is sort of different but um what about if and this comes up a lot actually we have this question i think almost every session um what is do you, it what from is, the same person every day <laughs> it could be well you're gonna get it answered now hopefully um so what if the person you're dating is a non-devotee or what do, what do you think of like non-devotee and devotee relationships 
Okay, who is it here that's dating a non-devotee? Come on, just out with you right now. Unless you're already married. I don't want to hear about it. Okay, please. Hare Krishna. Um, okay, I guess my take on that. So I think, you know, I, uh, I think it can work. Of course, I mean, what does non-devotee mean? What is devotee? That's a good question. Mean? That's a very good first question, actually. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, so because if you're with someone who's supportive and caring and who loves you, whether they're, you know, if they're, I don't, I don't know what we're defining as non-devotee. Yeah, like, okay, like, for okay. example, for example, um, you know, we have four primary principles. Um, does, does, are you saying someone who doesn't follow all four principles is, a, is not a devotee? Or is it about that they're from a Hindu background, but they don't even follow the principles? Or is it they follow one of the principles, you know? Or is it that they don't chant or they chant 16? They're not really a devotee. They chant a little, right? Like, what does it mean to be a devotee? And what does it mean? There are times in our relationship where Vrinda has been more strong in her devotional life. And there are times that I've been more strong in my devotional life. And it's not a fixed thing, you know? So that's also an important thing. Yeah, I would just say the only, I mean, I just feel that if you're with someone who is not a vegetarian, I feel like that is a major lifestyle difference. I, yeah, that would be, I think, really difficult. But because, that's for you. Yeah, but I just think, like, how are you going to raise your children? And it's very hard. That you would have to. It's very hard. I think the point that Rinda's making is don't, don't ask a question like this without seriously thinking about it yourself. Like, what are you talking about? Are you talking about that they um, think that being a devotee is completely the silliest thing ever? Well, don't marry that person. Are, they, are you talking about someone who's like um, not as serious as you? I mean, it's really, we know one of the more senior devotees in America, she just passed away. She was married for years to a Muslim man. And she came from a, her mother was a devotee, Prabhupada disciple, and her whole family around her were devotees. But she met a man who was a wonderful, humble and supportive man, very religious man. And they did a lot of service together. Can you imagine? It's very hard for us to understand, but he was very respectful, very caring, very loving, very kind, and totally respected her being a devotee. Supported her in being a devotee. So that's maybe not typical, but it was based on his character and her character. And they have also, this is just a little fascinating thing, they both happen to be black-bodied, which is another factor. We, I think we have to, part of the reason why I said what I said about the Grihasta community having to take care of our own business is because sometimes you can't just think like on paper like, it has to be practical. Like, it has to be realistic and practical, right? Like, for example, in a lot of the South American communities in, uh, you know, around the world, eating meat is a very big deal. They love eating meat. And it's the hardest principle for them to give up. Okay? 
I'm not saying you should be with someone who's eating meat. I'm just saying, if you're from South America and you're a devotee, you may not think that eating meat is the biggest thing because everyone's eating meat. In fact, they're very proud of it. It's a sign of wealth and status and whatever. Someone can love Krishna, go to the temple, chant, love Kirtan, do this thing. But whenever they go home with their family, they're definitely eating meat. That's crazy, right? But it's a cultural thing in this part of the world. So for us to think from where our vantage point, like, oh, they're not devotees. Like Rinda said, I agree with Rinda, like, oh my God, if our kids are like, oh my God, like, so scary. <laughs> Right? It's like, like, the breath of the, like, dead animals, like, on this person doesn't, like, you know. But, but I know one, I know once, <laughs> I know one, I know once, once uh, guru in ISKCON, and I don't want to tell someone else's story, so I'll, I'll just say this without saying names. I know one guru in ISKCON who is first disciple, most dedicated first disciple. Her husband ate meat and was not a devotee. And she's like, do I have to divorce my husband? He said, no. He said, he doesn't know how to cook. I have to cook him meat every day. He said, you keep cooking your husband meat, but you do your japa, you be a devotee of Krishna. They were already married. And she's a lovely lady, and she wanted to continue to care for her husband because he was just a nice guy, but he was just a meat-eating guy. He wasn't a bad guy, didn't hate Krishna, had not, you know, but he just was never going to stop eating meat. He supported her, he loved her, he respected her. He's never going to stop eating meat. South American. So he said, no, you're my disciple. You don't eat. You can cook if that's what you have to do. So I'm saying we have to be practical. It's really a question of like, really, let's be honest with ourselves and honest with our partner. Like, is it a thing? Can, it, can this really work? That's the thing. It's not a theoretical thing, right? Krishna consciousness, I think one of the things, I'm sorry to keep going, but I think it's really important. As grihastas, we have to deal with the world, right? We have to deal with the world. It's not theoretical. Like, okay, if I have kids who are going to college, and I do, do I want my daughter to be like one of those kids who lies to mom and dad? Oh, no, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't met any, I'm not seeing anyone, I'm not dating anyone. They have someone living in their flat, and they're lying to their mom and dad on the phone. Do I want that relationship with my kids? I know it happens a lot in the Indian community in America. It's like straight up lying on the phone. Like, you can't be here this weekend. My parents are coming into town. Like full on, just like, no mom, no dad. And they just walk around thinking like, my daughter is like, you know, nearby or like, I don't know. <laughs> I would much rather have a conversation where I'm like, I can't have this conversation. Rinda, you got to talk to, I got to, like, I can't handle it. I like, but please, you guys got to talk. Like, I can't be here for this conversation. Whatever. However, we got to deal with it. We need to be honest. Grihastas are, we're in the world. We have to really deal with it, right? Krishna consciousness is not a theoretical thing. Do you guys agree? Krishna consciousness is not theoretical. It has to be practical. Krishna consciousness should be the most practical thing. That should be more practical than anything. Otherwise, how is it real? Krishna's talking about fixing your mind at the time of death. Like, you can't be fictionalizing your life the whole way through, and then at the end, magically, somehow, rather, you, everything sorts itself out. Right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, so, yeah, just, I would just say, as far as, like, what degree of non-devotee and devotee, you would have to think about that. Because I just, personally, um... Friends of mine who were raised in Krishna consciousness and who have married non-devotees, 
it can and, be very difficult. Yeah, and one and meet, almost never works. I mean, they're basically of you know they've just decided to give up their their spiritual practice. We know a number of devotees who basically have started so, eating meat and just stopped basically being devotees because their partners yeah. eat. But then meat. I have friends too who are with quote unquote non devotees, but who are um, you know very respectful. They you know uh, encourage their their spiritual to, practices. Yeah, continue their spiritual practice, but they're also they're vegan or they're vegetarian themselves. And um, so I think, I think, yeah, it's kind of a it's, wide range. <laughs> but it's, but it's very important for but you think, to be yeah, honest. I think you have to be honest, like if, yeah, what, what you would be willing to give up or, or how, how your, what lifestyle you would want to live. Right. Um, so kind of continuing this topic a little bit, like picking the right person, um, Actually, this is a question specifically for Brenda. Um, at such a young age, how did you know Gauravani was the one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, yeah. I, um, well, I think I was just like, yeah, I'm so young and like madly in love. And <laughs> so, I, um, yeah, and I, I think like once we made that commitment of like, okay, we're, you know, we're married and, and definitely, I think in any long-term relationship and marriage, you have your ups and downs. It's just, um, yeah, we have that commitment. So, you know, trying to, to make it work. But I think, you know, before that, I mean, yeah, you have to have all like practical, I guess, um, you know, the things that we enjoy doing together and, and um, time apart with each other. So, I, I mean, all of that, we, you know, we had to find out beforehand. But, yeah, and I don't know, Cora, what else? Um, <laughs> I don't know, it's interesting. Vrinda and I often agree, but we are looking at the same thing from opposite sides. I've noticed that. We actually are agreeing on the same thing, but it looks like we're disagreeing because she's on this side and I'm on that side. We did this thing that I think Rinda hated called um, prepare and enrich. I think she absolutely hated it, but it was really important for me. It's, they do it in Christian communities. It's a, it's a test for young people who are thinking of being married that is done by their pastor or whatever. And you go through all these areas and answer questions and it shows your, your weaknesses. Do you have something like that? Do you do something like that here? Some, someone who's interested in this, please check it out. Prepare and enrich. It's the Christian version. The two areas that Vrind and I were weakest in have remained areas of great difficulty for us in our marriage. They've been consistently hard. We have a very different um, uh, uh, way of looking at money. And we have a very different way of looking at communication. And they've been, it's been consistently challenging. So those are areas we have to like really like be just extra attentive to because for sure there's going to be some difficulty. I, I really, I think, I think it's really important. Um, th this question, how do you, she, like, how do you know? Um, have you ever heard the joke people tell like there's only one way to make sure that you stay married? Don't get divorced. Like that's the only way to make sure you stay married is to not get divorced. 
Like there's no magic to it. You're just that's. But you know, what were you gonna say? No, I just that yeah, you should have those like very frank and open conversations of like what it is that you're expecting. I think because. Um, yeah. Yeah, we have some friends back home. They'll be, you know, it's like, oh, why? Are, how come you haven't met anyone yet? And he'll say, well, he's, he's talking to someone, but you know, the person wants them to, like, fully support them financially and allow them to travel to, you know, India twice a year and Dubai and, like, I don't, yeah. So it's just if you're meeting a partner, you're meeting someone, you just have to, I think, like, yeah, it'd be good to level set those expectations too. Tech level set. Um, so I'm going to sort of close up this topic with like two more questions. Um, so one is, I think something that people kind of like young people, especially kind of, um, worry about in our community a lot is, um, this question of like somebody who wants to experience like the sort of brahmachari life and spending time in the ashram. But then they're sort of in their 20s. But then they sort of worry that by the time they come out of that and they want to find a partner and they're like in their 30s, um, they might not find a good match. What's your sort of thoughts on that? This is so important. Okay, look, I think, I think we can solve this as a Grihasta community in small groups. Like in, I don't know how far flung these devotees here are, like what parts of London and surrounding areas you all are from. But really, all over the place? Is it all over the place? In, in, no, that's great, that's great. In your local area, in your local area, take responsibility for caring for each other as Grihastas. Make a, make it a priority. If someone in your local area wants to become a brahmachari, Make a commitment that we will get you a job when you come out of the ashram. So you can go in. We're going to check in with you year after year. And when you come out, one of us here is committing that we're going to give you a job for at least a year when you come out of the ashram. Not someone somewhere in London. Us in your home uh, town. Like, let's do this. It's not rocket science, right? Because we can do this. It just requires us to take responsibility. The, the, the Chinese community does it. The Jewish community does it. The Mormon community does it. We're just being lazy. I mean, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But this, this idea that we can leave it to the GBC, I mean, come on. It's not fair to the GBC. It's not fair to us. I mean, we, these are things we can do. It's not fair to our Guru Maharaj. Like, my Guru Maharaj has to find me a job because I joined the Brahmacharya Ashram. No, more about finding a partner. But I'm saying these things. This is, it, look, there's no magic to it. There's no magic to it, but, it's, but it, it requires hands-on. It takes a village, right, to raise someone. And Grihasta Ashram is responsible for all the other ashrams. Do we agree to that point that Grihasta Ashram is responsible for all other ashrams? Right? I know that my Guru Maharaj and Chopati, they started off with a very unhealthy relationship between the Brahmacharis and the Grihasthas. And now it's like, it's not ever, okay. Part of the reason why it's so important for Grihastha community is to take responsibility for things like this. 
is that none of these problems are ever fully solved. For example, child protection, there will always be a danger to young people when there is Kali Yuga. It's never, there's no rule or system that you can put into place that will stop people who are not nice from trying to take advantage of nice people. That's the Kali Yuga. So same thing. There will never be a time where young devotees don't need help finding qualified and healthy and nice partners in their lives. Like it's never not needed. So who's going to do that? We have to do that. So I just feel like, I, I, you know, I, I know it's now six o'clock, right? I feel, are you guys happy with our gathering? Like, is this okay for everyone? Because if you want, if we were feeling like it's a little one-sided, we could take some of these questions and just like make four groups or five groups and just go through some of these questions together in groups with me and Vrinda roaming, roaming around from group to group. And then we could all share what we kind of some ideas that we have from, or we could just, I don't know, whatever you guys want, you know, just an idea. Would you guys like to stay in this format or would you like to create six groups and we can roam around and visit with the groups and we can go through the remaining questions more like that? How do you feel? Six. One hour. Let's do a vote. We'll be democratic. <laughs> uh, show of hands, stay in, stay in what we're doing right now. Okay. Show of hands, break into six groups and have some discussions. Oh. Okay. We don't like talking to each other. <laughs> Not so adventurous. I, th I think people, are, they're really enjoying hearing from you and I think that's where that's coming from. I, the reason why I'm saying this is that honestly, you guys already know the answers to all these questions, like honestly. But, but really what needs to happen, and we're happy, like, are you happy to keep talking? Okay. We're happy to do this. But honestly, the hard work that our society needs is like rolling up the sleeves and, and understanding there is no cavalry. You are the one. There's no one coming to rescue you. I mean, unless you're waiting for Kalki. <laughs> And I don't think that's the kind of cavalry that we're looking for. Anyway, yeah, please. Okay, great. Well, um, I mean, I, I suggest maybe we spend maybe like 15, 20 more minutes on Q&A and then we can move on to Kirtan. Um, so we've got... Um, if you guys want to keep... Or we can keep going. Whatever you guys want. We're just here to see you guys. <laughs> we'll maybe do some more voting. Um, <laughs> Okay, so I'll sort of move on to um, actually while you're in the marriage of being in, being married and um, the various challenges that people have in that. And I'm going to combine a few questions here. Um, where you have um, one person in the relationship or actually each individual in the relationship potentially having issues, whatever they are, um, that can come in and affect the relationship dynamic to what extent are you responsible for supporting the other person or should they be kind of introspecting and sorting it out themselves? And actually one of the examples is if someone's kind of afraid to commit 
um, like getting engaged or married. That's one example that came up. Well, that's different. That's different. Yeah. Yeah, that example is different. That's. A, that's we we can treat that separately. That's <laughs> a separate thing. Someone, someone reframe the question for me. Did you understand the question? I want to hear it in someone else's words. Should we repeat it? Okay, I'll try and re repeat it as I've tried to phrase it. Um, when you have, you know, an issue in the relationship as an individual, um, or the other person has an issue in the relationship, to what extent are is the other person responsible for helping you to fix, you know, that thing about yourself, or should you be fixing it yourself, kind of thing, independently? What's the level of expectation I should have from my partner versus what should I commit to doing my own self work? <clears throat> Do you have a wireless mic? No. We have them in America. <laughs> Just joke. I'm just joking. I just thought if it's important, because of time, if it's important to hear the question, it would be just an easy way. Um, someone, well, someone t give us some, what do you think? What is an example of the kind of thing that you should fix yourself and not expect your partner to, to fix for you? So can someone, please? Sorry, everyone, I'm very deep I mean, she's not talking about you guys. She's, you know. It's a beautiful point. It's a beautiful point. Yeah. So without getting, without getting, it's great. It's a really elegant point. Everyone, everyone understood that point. It's really nice. The math doesn't work out the other way. It's nice. Yeah, it's a hundred and a hundred. It's great. And in fact, anyone who's been married a long time might agree with me. Sometimes it's more than a hundred. You got to give more than a hundred sometimes. Well, you know, I think both partners sometimes feeling like they're giving more than a hundred gives you a chance of making it work. Um, but 
What are some examples of things in a relationship that are things that you should just figure out on your own? Not the other person's responsibility. Can someone think of one? Interesting. No, it's a, well, it's a very interesting thing. Um, I think, well, no, I, no, it's a very interesting thing. I think actually that the discussion around mental health issues is in flux in the world right now. That's I, kind of what I thought of. Like, yeah, when this question came up, like mental health. Say more what you were thinking. Say more what you were thinking. No, that, yeah, like if that was just the example that came into my mind. Like if someone is struggling with their mental health and isn't able to fully be present or, you know, kind of do um, what's expected of them in the relationship. If it's, you know, they're supposed to cook dinner or whatever it is, they're supposed to be watching the kids or working. Um, I did, yeah, I think as a partner, you have to give that person, like be able to support them and, and help help them to get the help that they need. I think that is like your responsibility as a partner, you know, whether that's professional help or with their friends or their family or, you know, whatever you know is gonna like nourish them um, so that so that they're able to, you know, get get better and and are able to be a, a better version of themselves. And but it's not up to you as a partner to do the yeah, the internal hard work. See, that's why I said it's interesting because there is a part that it feels is the other person's responsibility. Um, I think one thing that is maybe obvious, but it should be said in this context, is a lot of times people who aren't married think that marriage is about lust. And actually marriage is more about friendship. Um, and what happens is if you think it's about attraction and just the feeling of it, you you tend to get disappointed. And once you get disappointed, if you can build yourself back together, you can make it work. But if you really are, are constantly thinking that it's supposed to always be about attraction and that feeling and that kind of racing pulse or whatever, it's probably not going to work. You're probably going to end up, you know, failing. So if friendship is the foundation for marriage, which I really think it should be, do you agree? If friendship is the foundation for marriage, it changes a lot of the questions because it's more about, yes, you have to be attracted to the person and yes, you you know, all these other things. But if you, if you were saying like, okay, in a friendship, if someone is struggling, how much of the responsibility is it yours to fix? It's much easier to say, well, you got to be a friend, but they got to take care of their own business. You can't really fix it. You know, it changes the dynamic of the question, you know? Like if you have a friend who's struggling with mental health, like you can be a friend, but ultimately like they're going to have to figure it out. Like you can help them, you can support them, but on some level, I mean, let's be honest, on some level, if, if you have a friend who's just constantly struggling with mental health, you're not going to be able to maintain the friendship beyond a certain point. If they're not doing the work, if they're not healing, how can you 
how can you be their friend, you know? Someone who's like, you know, any, any um, illness, addiction, if they're not doing the work, like how can you maintain a friendship with someone who's so addicted to drugs that they begin thieving things from you? Like there is a point where you're just like, I really consider you a close friend. I can't spend any more time with you, right? Please. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess just from experience, I mean, I definitely say things that, like, will just pop in my head, and then I'll, like, blurt it out, and it's not kind. And then I'll be like, ooh, like, that sounded bad. And then I'll... <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think you do have to... You know, it is good to like say it first to yourself and, and hear how it comes out. But I mean, also you have to, you know, if something really is like bothering you, you have to be able to express that. But I think that is also good, like to have other relationships where you can go to your, you know, your girlfriends and just like vent or complain just because you need to get something like off your chest. And you might be able to communicate that to, you know, your partner. Um, but you don't want to like drag the point on so long, right? But then that's why it's like having that community of other people that you can go to helps to to relieve like stress. Can I just add? It's really important to have venting friends, and those friends cannot be antagonists or people who make things worse, or they're just here to listen to you. They have to be yeah. real friends. And, and yeah. you have to use that venting friend carefully. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. They have to have both the, you know, they they can't be one sided, right? They have to have like they, they think of you as a unit, and they know like you're just have to. They're not gonna try to like break you apart or take take sides, you know. Someone that's gonna be always supporting the two of you. It's true. I'm friends with Rinda's core group of friends, and they all want us to be successful and they I know they say things behind my back that oh my god if I heard what they said like <laughs> I would never and like I'll come in the room and they'll all like every once in a while I know like like I'm like they just were saying something that I know like I know they just said something that I don't want to hear but in their dealings with me they're all very kind very friendly very respectful always very encouraging they have no desire for us to fail it's really important. I think it's right. So this brought up another point in my mind that two important things that I want to say. One is that this goes back to the subject at the beginning. You know, Vrinda and I have been married 25 years, approximately. I am just coming into a place of self-confidence with myself to be able to accept when Vrinda says something that's harsh, not taking it personally. I, 
I, I was very young when I went to Gurukula, and I was bullied a lot as a kid in Gurukula. I mean, I was four, for God's sakes. Don't send your kid to Gurukula at four. <laughs> they will not become Prahlad Maharaj. <laughs> um, and and uh, so, so for me to have the self-strength and you know, to know myself enough, um, an interesting thing just happened, which is we have a friend who's an astrologer, and he was just doing, you know, from time to time, we don't put too much stock in this. It's not like we're like super, super astrology people, but we also see it as like a science, one of the Vedic sciences. Like we're not super duper Ayurveda people, but we also like respect it as a thing. So like, you know, we try and keep a general balance. A friend of ours, astrologer recently said that, you know, looking at Rinda's chart, he's like, Rinda's one of the most nourishing, and supportive and loving people in the world. And you should be very grateful to have her as your wife. Don't ever take anything she says personally. He said, just anything she says, just, just translate it through like, a, like however many rose colored glasses you need until it's like, oh, what a sweet thing to say, you know, like whatever. Because she's just saying what pops in her head. She doesn't mean what it sounds like she means. And for me to have that, to have a friend say that to me has changed things. And for me to be adult enough to be able to actually do that, like I really, it's been a, a game changer actually. So this brings up another point, which I think is quite important. People are individuals. There's no stereotypical man or stereotypical woman. Like it just not, it doesn't exist. There are certain roles in our marriage that Vrinda takes on that are masculine roles. And there are certain roles that I take on that are feminine roles in our relationship. It's just a fact. Any, any Grihastas here disagree with me on that? That it's not a stereotypical thing? Does anyone disagree? <laughs> I just have that experience. There's certain things that Vrinda does that would be a typically male role. And she's just perfectly suited. She's super happy to do it. And vice versa. Not in every way, or it's just people are individuals. Don't be afraid to be yourself and allow the other person to be themselves. Please, Prabhu. Um, just chatting about what you're saying about sharing experiences and you know, responsibilities. Um, that's, what that is. that's a very female role, by the way. Well, no, there's still. Um, what in raising children specifically? Yeah, I. Um, I mean, I think we did the more traditional type role, but I think it's just. I mean, Gora was always very hands-on. I don't. I don't know. I think it. Whatever came natural to us. Um, just, you know, we're both there, we're both parents, and if, but if I could console, especially when they're babies, you know, if they wanted me more, then I would be there to comfort them and take care of them. But I think, like, as far as, like, typical kind of, you know, raising a family, household, we're both, like, you know, equally caring for our kids and cooking and cleaning, and um, I think I did a little more of that than Gora, but it's also 
because I'm better at that kind of stuff. <laughs> I will clean the kitchen, and I'll be like, oh, she's going to be so proud of me. And she comes in, she's like, look at this place. It's terrible. I'm like, I just cleaned the whole thing. So, um, yeah, but I think in a relationship, that's you know also important. And to, I think, have those conversations. Of course, like all of these things, you know, Gore and I didn't have... I think like explicit conversations about like, okay, well, who's going to, you know, are you going to cook three times a week and you're going to change diapers? And, but, um, I think just, we just knew that we, we could count on one another. You know, if I was too tired, he, he would do something. And if he was tired, I would pick up. So I think just, um, having that flexibility too. I mean, we really loved our kids. We love them still. Um, my, my son is 14 and he's like the joke I always tell is I'm sure he's going to see this you know like recorded someday somewhere but when we were first married we thought we might have five kids I, I, I was like raised you know as an only child I was in Gurukul but I thought well, you know nice big family and we had my daughter, Ravati, and then my second daughter, Kairava, and they were like little angels, like, you know, singing and playing. And then my son, Kirtan, came, and we were like, or three. Three is also perfectly fine. <laughs> no joking. It hasn't changed much. No joking. Ten seconds. One, one hundred. Two, one hundred. If it was silent... 10 seconds, he was going to kill himself. He was about to smell like something terrible and deadly was happening within 10 seconds. Uh, my son, if you couldn't hear it, something, you better run because something, you know, jumping off of breaking a glass, something, I mean, something, you know. Um, but the thing is that, and I, I think this is, I think this is true. I think it's important to say. Uh, we really love our kids, and we always have chosen to do what we think is the most loving thing. And uh, it doesn't always look like Krishna consciousness from the outside. Sometimes Krishna consciousness requires a little bit of um, maturity to actually apply it, right? It's not cookie cutter. Um, but I think it's, I think it's, I think Krishna's happy if we love our kids. And so in that sense, that was the goal is to love our children, really, truly love them from the spiritual awareness that they are Krishna's. Um, and in this way, I think we love Krishna. I think that we do see each other in relationship to Krishna and as devotees and our kids also as see them as devotees and so if you can do that if you can prioritize the right things i think it becomes natural i think the theoretical side of it is where the trouble comes we get too much in our heads about something and not step back and see it for what it is you know I, I don't want you guys to think that our marriage has been always easy um, or even is easy now. 
I think it's important to know that um, there's a comedian who talks about how like divorce is getting more and more prevalent. And he's, he makes the joke that like in the future, people are going to be like, oh, your parents are t still together. Oh, I'm so sorry. It must be so hard for you. You know, all that arguing and stuff, you know, like <laughs> being staying married is hard especially in a world that encourages you that you don't need to stay together. In fact, just go do whatever you want because like life is short and, um, you know, no one knows how to take care of you like you. So, you know, go for it. Just do what you need to do and don't worry about it. But we understand that it's actually different. Krishna wants us to be our best selves and to be our best selves. We require community. And to have community, you have to have couples that are helping hold space for each other. And for the, it's required. It's the way it works. It's how that strength comes. It's those networks, right? And to do that is not easy. So I think, I think Rinda's right that we just have every, everything we've dealt, we've looked at it and we just thought, okay, how are we going to deal with this? And underneath it all is this awareness that, how are we going to deal with it as devotees? How are we going to deal with it in a way that's pleasing to Krishna? But how do we love each other? How do we love the kids? You know, sorry to talk so much, but I think both of our parents being devotees came from the generation of Prabhupada disciples who were a little fanatical. And in some ways, I mean, we both love our parents. They're very involved in our lives. But in some ways, and we really love them and respect them, but in some ways our parents are still a little fanatical. Like even now. I mean, and it's a good thing. Like it's not a bad thing. It's who they are. They're, they're doing them. They're being themselves. And for that, we're very happy. But we wouldn't do it the way that they did. Like there's nothing that would get me to send my kid to a boarding school at four like just like wouldn't there's like I can't think of any scenario that would make me do that right it doesn't mean that they're bad people it's just that we're different we are ourselves and we've learned you know I once was speaking with my guru Maharaj Radhanaswami and I said to him you know Maharaj I'm so concerned about the next 20-25 years like how are we going to do this and he said, oh, you're feeling concerned? He said, that's funny because I feel very optimistic. He always feels the opposite of me about everything. Um, I said, really? Well, how are you optimistic? Like there's so many challenges on the horizon. He said, our generation had to figure out everything from scratch. But your generation has the benefit of seeing all the mistakes that we made. All you have to do is not repeat them. And everything will be fantastic. I was amazed that Maharaj thought that way. He sees that as very simple. Just look and study what's been done and see what didn't work and don't do it again. And then everything will be much easier. So. Um, so I'm just conscious of time and I know that everyone would really love to um, do Kirsan. So we're gonna move on to Kirsan. Um, I think uh, just a few announcements before we do do that. And let me find 
Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, so first of all, I just want to say thank you to our wonderful speakers. So can we get three loud Harry Bowls? Haribo! 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 Rani Devi.